from Movendi International, I'm Mike Dünnbier. This is the Alcohol Issues Podcast. It's Saturday, November 14th, 2020. Welcome to the eighth episode of the Alcohol Issues Podcast, our weekly conversation about the latest alcohol issues in policy and science and new alcohol industry revelations. Every episode we are also bringing you an in-depth conversation about alcohol issues of global importance. In this episode I'm talking with Maristela Montero from the Pan-American Health Organization. In this week's news highlight segment we talk about three alcohol issues that we think deserve special attention. In policy news we talk about the role of ultra-cheap alcohol in the UK's heavy alcohol burden and we explore similar stories from different countries about the need to strengthen services for people with alcohol problems during the pandemic. Regarding latest science we talk about a new study that examined the impact of alcohol policy development in former Soviet Union countries over the last 30 years. And in the Big Alcohol Watch we discuss corporate capture of the government in the Northern Territory in Australia that has moved to allow an alcohol megastore in the middle of alcohol-free Aboriginal communities. But first we begin with an in-depth conversation. This week we have an inspiring guest and global leader for alcohol policy development and implementation. This week we are joined by Maristela Montero. She is the senior advisor on alcohol and substance abuse in the non-communicable disease and mental health department of the Pan-American Health Organization, PAHO, headquartered in Washington DC in the United States. With Maristella I discuss alcohol consumption and harm in the Americas region. She even shares results from a recent survey among Latin American countries about alcohol and COVID-19. The alcohol burden is staggering and levels of harm actually surprised me. We also talked about alcohol policy making in the region, the success stories, the challenges and obstacles. Maristella shares some surprising insights and we discussed the way forward. Maristella has been a leader working to support countries to develop evidence-based alcohol policy solutions for many years and so I wanted to talk with her about the way forward and what she thinks would be key tools and crucial issues to make alcohol policy the priority it should be. With Maristella I enjoyed a deep dive into alcohol issues in the Americas region with lots of lessons for advocates from around the world and with both truly staggering statistics as well as inspiring ideas for the way forward. Maristella discussed issues that I had not reflected about before in the way she did. Hello Maristella, thank you for taking time to speak with me for our Alcohol Issues podcast. Um, to get us going, I just wanted to give you a chance to explain a little bit what is it that you are working with at the Pan-American Health Organization. Well, I'm the senior advisor uh, on alcohol, so I am the only staff 
in the region responsibly responsible for full-time for mm -hmm. alcohol-related topics. So that means we provide technical assistance to all countries in the Americas upon request uh, on alcohol policy development, on alcohol information, on participating in research, uh, helping with finding scientific information, training. Uh, we also have in every country a focal point uh, in the Ministry of Health uh, that it's involved in uh, alcohol uh, issues and we have meetings uh, with them. We share, we have a network of these focal points and we send at least twice a month, uh, five to six uh, new studies that come out and uh, we find interesting and relevant to them. Uh, we also work with other organizations, with NGOs, with um, uh, other networks in the region, like the Healthy Caribbean Coalition, there is the Latin American Coalition, uh, Healthy Coalition, the equivalent to that, and uh, other professional organizations, the network on brief interventions for alcohol. So we do a little bit of everything. Uh, I plan uh, regional studies as well, uh, research studies, uh, and we try to get countries to implement the same protocol and we provide the training and et cetera. And raising funds if possible. And these are all, I think, quite interesting issues. I think we'll talk about some of them uh, later on as well. Um, so I think this is a quite a wide range of work that you have. And so um, going into the reality of alcohol harm and alcohol consumption in the Americas, can you tell us a little bit about what the situation when it comes to consumption uh, is like in your region? Well, we uh, rely a lot on the global status report on alcohol that WHO produces and we collaborate in, in the uh, generation of information uh, for that. And uh, according to their report, and now our regional report was just published as well, we are the region with the second uh, uh, largest average per capita consumption in the general population at 7.8 liters per capita and uh, following the European region. And we are also now growing uh, in terms of numbers of drinkers. We became uh, uh, the region with the largest number of prevalence of current drinkers and at almost 57% of the general population is more among uh, men than women. Mm. It's almost 70% of men over 15 years of age and 44% of women are current drinkers. And uh, we also have a high prevalence of alcohol use disorders. You can put that under harms or in terms of uh, heavy drinking. Yeah. Uh, well, 9.2%, and especially among women, this is uh, the prevalence that is highest of all regions. 
uh, even higher than Europe. Uh, half episodic drinking, uh, you know, often called binge drinking, is also very prevalent. And uh, overall, we have a quarter of uh, the population, 23.4% uh, of heavy episodic drinkers. But if you look at only those who do drink among the current drinkers, this prevalence goes over 50%. So it is uh, a sign that uh, most people, especially men, most men, uh, when they drink, they drink heavily. And, uh, and that places them at various harms and uh, acute, chronic, and we see that in the uh, alcohol-related harms that we report. Yeah, on this, I think these are quite staggering numbers. What I never understand, actually, to be honest, is there are, of course, uh, these numbers about per capita use, but now you also explain that if we just look at the alcohol users in the Americas region, um, what their binge alcohol consumption is. So what is the meaning of the per, cap per capita numbers? What do they tell us? And why is it important to also look at just the alcohol users? Why don't we just look at alcohol users all the time? Because uh, alcohol, uh, that's a good, very good question. The overall per capita consumption is based on the volume of drinking. So you calculate that based on how much alcohol was sold and imported to the country and uh, you discount the tourist consumption. So it's a crude but uh, accurate uh, indicator of how much alcohol has been used in that population. Uh, regardless of who drinks and who doesn't drink. Mm -hmm. When we do surveys, we know from a large literature, not only in the region, globally, that people underestimate their drinking. Mm -hmm. And if you would calculate just that per capita consumption based on surveys, you would get about 40% less drinking than you get the figure with per capita wow. consumption. So it's not, you cannot trust the survey per se just to calculate per capita consumption, know how much is being sold or how much is being drunk in a society. But you can use that information about whether you drink in the last 12 months, current drinkers, uh, there is way less stigma to admit that you drink regardless of uh, how much. And uh, use that information. Of course, the alcohol that was sold was drunk by a drinker. Yeah. It's yeah. obvious. And, but when you redo the calculation, then you see, uh, you find double the figure. Uh, for example, from 7.8 goes up to 15.1 liters per capita. So that indicates that people drink a lot. And uh, also, uh, then you can use that to uh, discuss what can be done. The policies also are, uh, can be monitored better with per capita consumption than mm -hmm. only on on uh, drinking uh, patterns, for example, or how much or how many people 
drink. Excellent, that's very useful. And I have one more uh, follow-up question for this conversation about alcohol consumption. Uh, you know, Maristella, in the um, Western European, I think also in, in the North American countries, young people are staying alcohol-free longer and are reducing their alcohol use. In um, Southern America, do you see similar trends like that? Oh, to an extent, yes, but not uh, how you see in, in Europe. You still see uh, very early ages of initiation of drinking, uh, 11, 12 years of age. And uh, even if that group below 18, let's say, uh, may not drink that much or have not increased the drinking, the fact that they have initiated at that age is a significant risk because uh, sooner or later they'll become regular drinkers. Yeah. Uh, and we also see from surveys in, in, the, uh, in Brazil, in Mexico, they are the largest countries in Latin America, uh, that girls are increasing their consumption faster than boys and uh, the initiation is basically the same. Uh, so we don't see this trend of reducing consumption. Mm. You may have a little bit of no, or less, less heavy episodic drinking, but it is in a subgroup that should not be drinking at all. So yeah. the fact that it decreased 5%, 2%, or even 10% uh, is, uh, doesn't mean that they stop drinking. They mm. are still at, at risk and the brain is very sensitive to alcohol at very low doses. Yeah, and this is uh, interesting. I think also when you talked about consumption uh, levels and patterns in general in your region, you already started talking about the harms. And of course, mm -hmm. that's because harm follows consumption. And uh, so I wanted to ask you a little bit more specifically in addition to what you've already explained, what kind of alcohol harm can you see in the Americas region? Well, what is monitored is mortality. Mm. Uh, we have estimated 379 deaths a year uh, from the year 2016 to 18. Depends on when you do the calculation, it can be a little more, a little less, but it's around that at a minimum. 379,000. That means 5.5% of all deaths in the America. When you look at Delhi's uh, disability adjusted life years, it, it is almost 19 million years. And that represents 6.7% of all the Delhi's. And in the region, despite the fact that when we're going to talk about policies, and uh, often they are linked to NCDs and that's yeah. uh, uh, because alcohol is a risk factor, but in our region, the impact is way larger uh, caused by injuries, both intentional and non-intentional injuries. And so it goes homicides, suicides, uh, uh, traffic crashes, uh, falls, uh, drownings, etc. And uh, these uh, represent almost 
uh, a quarter of all alcohol-related deaths compared to 3.3 to 0.4% uh, that relate to NCDs. So the injuries, and, and we also know the injuries kill young people more than uh, the other age groups. So we are talking a lot of loss due to a young person either being killed or suffering an injury that will live for life maybe of many years with a disability. Yeah. Uh, we also have important role of liver diseases uh, in uh, liver cirrhosis, in particular in the region. Yeah. And uh, there are few countries that have any studies really done on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And uh, like in many places in the world, we don't have those studies yet. But yeah. based on uh, a model that was uh, developed by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health and was validated and published in, in The Lancet, the estimated uh, prevalence of fetal uh, alcohol syndrome and the broader spectrum, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders is significantly uh, higher in the region compared to other regions. There are some countries in the Caribbean that the predicted estimates are the highest. Uh, and this is very new for them because it's not even recognized as a problem. Yeah. But uh, based on the pattern of use of women and that they use during pregnancy, they, uh, and based on the science we know about fetal syndrome and the risk of uh, being exposed and lead to a, a syndrome is, so give them numbers very high up. Uh, and this is a concern because it's uh, a lifetime problem that is incurable, but can be prevented. And now a question came into my mind. I am from Germany, grew up in Germany, and now I've been living in Sweden for many years. And so I, I feel I can compare how German society looks at alcohol harm and how Swedish society does that. And I just wanted to ask you, you have mentioned the lack of research into some of these problems that you have talked about now. And for example, for fetal alcohol spectrum disorder that in the Caribbeans, they don't even recognize this as a problem yet. Mm -hmm. So how is this? Like this is, this seems to be a really heavy burden uh, of alcohol on these societies in your region. Is there a societal understanding that there is a problem or more like in Germany where we are even disregarding the, the, the problem as such? Uh, I would say that we are at the level of disregarding the problem as well. Uh, we have published manuals now uh, for health professionals. To, mm -hmm. There are basic educational manuals. It's not for towards a full diagnosis, but explains the risks and uh, the exposure and how you can make the diagnosis, which tests you can use and what are the services that are needed, you know, across the life span. And uh, we are planning all the publications to the public and to parents as well. And, uh, but there are no services to do those diagnoses. You see, uh, what you see is only the, the, 
the symptom, one of them or several of them in, in kids. And they may be attributable to alcohol and you don't know. And that prevents you from developing the prevention campaigns as well. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, you see uh, uh, inattentive kid, someone that can't uh, follow or learn well, or maybe have a developmental delay. And uh, these kids, remain without diagnosis. Often the parents are blamed as not being supervising the kids and, uh, or there might be a case of alcohol uh, uh, use disorder in the mother, but uh, then they easy to blame that that's because yeah. they can't take care of kids, etc. So there's a lot that uh, can be done in uh, still raise awareness of uh, that problem. And for alcohol problems in general, I think uh, this is really staggering to understand uh, how early alcohol affects uh, people in the Americas. You talked about young people uh, living their entire lives then with disabilities due to alcohol related reasons or uh, dying very, very prematurely. Is there an understanding for this overall burden? Is, is this better? Maybe I can imagine alcohol and violence that some countries are reacting, but, but how does it look like? Uh, well, I think the, the discourse and, uh, has not been expanded, I think, uh, expanded to cover all these issues. The, it was, uh, in my opinion, very good to put alcohol linked to NCDs because there was a, a big push for that area of work that was needed. And uh, alcohol then tag along, and it is a risk factor, but to a lesser degree than other risk factors, but it's still important, especially with cancer, for example, that raise a lot of awareness. Uh, but you need to tackle the other problems. You need to make the, them aware uh, that it's also, for example, in uh, during pregnancy, it's linked to tuberculosis, mm -hmm. to HIV, pneumonia. Uh, we did a big effort on alcohol and COVID as well. We did a, a, a regional survey on that. And, uh, and so there is no road safety, another uh, drink driving, mm -hmm very important uh, uh, area of work where you can have policies at work they can be complemented by uh, uh, public policies uh, and there was a lot of investment internationally and regionally on traffic safety so alcohol uh, needed to be part of that and it was part of that and that's where we could see the su successes some countries passing the adequate laws and beginning to uh, do the implementation properly of the uh, breath analyzers and random breath tests etc yeah. and this is very interesting um do you already have results from the regional survey on COVID? I am not aware that any other region has done this. This is quite exciting. Can you share something um, about this? Oh, yes, uh, we did present last month uh, uh, the results uh, in English. 
just uh, on Wednesday, uh, this week, in, in two days, we're going to present in Spanish. Uh, and we have a report in the website, uh, both English, uh, Spanish is almost done. Uh, we'll be there too. And uh, there was uh, a regional survey that we made available uh, in four languages. It was open to all countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. Wow. And, uh, we obtained uh, 12,348 valid answers. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there were actually 23,000 people who entered the survey, but after giving the, the consent, they dropped. So mm -hmm. because it was anonymous, we do not know anything about them, but they didn't complete the whole questionnaire at all. Mm -hmm. Just the first question about which country you're in and, uh, and do you consent? And after that, they said yes, but they didn't complete the questionnaire. Uh, we know from experiencing all the types of surveys similar and across the world that people with more problems or more drinking may not uh, respond to those surveys. Uh -huh. Anyway, but we got a very significant number that allowed us uh, to analyze individual country. Nine of them had enough numbers that we did uh, individual analysis. We got all sub-region, uh, regions of PAHO. So there is uh, uh, the Mesoamerica, Southern Cone, Andean mm -hmm. region, and the Caribbean. Uh, and these are uh, online uh, available as well. And uh, so the results uh, were similar to the survey that was done in Europe. There were also large uh, survey in European countries, but with less questions, I think, on alcohol. And uh, there was a reduction in consumption. Despite in the US, we know there was a separate study, another study in the US mm -hmm. showed the opposite. In the US in early May, then when was implemented that survey, showed an increase in consumption. Yeah. But we saw a, a decrease uh, overall and a decrease in heavy episodic drinking, but from a very high level to start with of the respondents, uh, we got uh, like 60%, now I don't have the figures, in it, that reported in 2019 heavy episodic drinking. And that went down to, I think it was 50%, uh, went down to 32%. But still a third of the yeah. drinkers reporting you know at least once a month uh having that is a lot and we are now analyzing which factors are related to those who actually increase the mm. uh, heavy episodic drinking those who had before and continue to do without a much difference so they remain the same but they were before and after heavy episodic drinkers and those who actually decrease uh, have episodic drinking. Uh, and uh, we are seeing that the level, how much quarantine uh, they had uh, and 
how much stress they reported mm. were related to more drinking. Those with less resources uh, measured by their average, uh, the, their monthly minimum wages, uh, they drank less and they reduced more than the wealthier groups. And that is very consistent with the literature that we know. The more you have, uh, the more you drink uh, in general, even though you can have uh, poor people with more impacts. Yeah. And another uh, important finding to my view was that the vast majority, over 90% of these heavy episodic drinkers never seek help and mm. before and during the pandemic. And so that adds to already uh, a, a great gap, a need that we have to do more in terms of uh, health service and provision of uh, screening, brief interventions. And not only they were dropped, but the fact is that people, because they don't recognize they have a risk, they don't seek any help. Yeah. And uh, that can change also with uh, more awareness of all these impacts that we talk here. Yeah. Uh, has. Yeah, risk recognition, I think, is an entire a subject that uh, would deserve uh, much more attention where we talk about the alcohol norm. We always uh, have to talk yeah. about alcohol marketing and how risk is portrayed there. So this yeah. is very interesting. And we will put these... I will put links to, to this report into the okay. show notes. And now, Maristella... Uh, sorry, we also found that uh, people uh, uh, drank more to socialize online, uh -huh. to in front of kids before mm -hmm. five in the afternoon drinking. So the norms and this, uh, this uh, also changed because of COVID and exposed kids more to drinking. And uh, we have no idea what will be the impact in the long, uh, long term of that. Yeah. yeah, this is also interesting. I think quite worrying as he already explained that the age of initiation of children in the Americas region is very, very young. Uh, I yeah. think you said 11, 12 years uh, very mm -hmm. often. So we have to track really the development there. Mm -hmm. and. Now you already uh, started, I think, talking a little bit about the policy dimension. So uh, is it possible to say that availability and affordability decreased? And so also, I think it's quite a substantial reduction of heavy episodic alcohol use, or does that survey not really allow you to draw this conclusion? Uh, no, it, it, the survey doesn't allow for that, but we know from other reports, uh, well, first to start with, and we have a report on our, uh, alcohol policy scorings that uh, in other studies in the region, that affordability is very high and has uh, been increasing. That meaning the prices are, uh, relative prices are going down for alcohol. The availability is, uh, it, you cannot generalize because in some countries had a total ban, other yeah. countries uh, had uh, limited availability in bars, restaurants, you know, you know the, uh, in public events, sports events. And uh, 
So it is not a surprise to me in a way that when you ask you know, young people, for example, from these surveys, the young people uh, in our survey was above 18. That was the minimum to participate. But uh, those reduce more than other age groups because these people are uh, young people usually exposed to such a level of promotion and drinking yeah. at universities, parties every week, and uh, whether it's within, in the campus, off campus, that's the way people socialize in sports events, in shows, uh, on the street, that, you know, all types of parties in Latin America happen with alcohol, all of that has decreased. Mm. And it's hard to think that people would drink the same amount all at home yeah uh, so uh, in a way i think it is expected uh, and in, at the same time it is expected that people would uh, increase the frequency of drinking if you're staying home every day maybe you drink uh, at lunch or at dinner and uh, uh, you used to do that once a week twice a week and you begin to do three, four times a day. That, that is a type of increase that can be documented as well, but uh, not necessarily of heavy episodic drinking. Yeah. So there are many nuances. And uh, because this, none of these surveys are representative as, you know, uh, they are non-probabilistic. You get actually a, a certain type of people the answer and that's what we got with at least high school degrees so well educated uh, 90 over 90 percent were had at least high school degrees and people who can access uh, internet connection all that and a phone they all determines who answered but it's uh, impressive to see the these figures in, in this population yeah anyway. So one fact you mentioned, Maristella, is that alcohol has become cheaper in, in the region. But I wanted to ask also, this is actually a grim picture with alcohol harm in young people, the overall burden. Um, are there success stories in the Americas um, of alcohol policy development, alcohol policy implementation? Uh, well, the good stories are related to drink driving countermeasures. Really, that's uh, there are maybe 13 countries that have passed at least the 0.05 uh, recommended by WHO blood alcohol level for driving. Mm -hmm. uh, but only eight countries have both recommendations of WHO, which are 0.05 for the general drivers and 0.02 for young people, for new drivers. And uh, so this after a few years or several, 10 years of efforts in uh, traffic safety, that's all we got. Yeah. In the fiscal policies, but the other areas, we are very weak. Mm -hmm. Currently only eight countries in the Americas have a national policy on alcohol. Uh, and, uh, Many draft the policy, but then is not adopted and stays on for 
long time like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, fiscal policies also very weak. Uh, the, the vast majority do tax alcohol, but not for health purposes, for mm -hmm. not to reduce uh, consumption, only to increase revenues. And uh, as you know, it's a commodity that is used by many people, it costs not much, and, and so any increase uh, in the tax will increase revenues substantially for governments. Yeah. Uh, but not reduce the harm. Uh, with COVID and the efforts made to, re to talk about building back better, and uh, there is now a new conversation ongoing on increasing using these commodities, they're harmful to, as a, to tax them, to reduce their drinking, uh, to reduce their use, and at the same time, generate the revenue that can be used to improve health services. So there is some, some hope, but um, would you say, I mean, I wanted to ask you about gaps and concerns, but uh, this is quite a bleak picture that uh, road safety, as important as it is in the Americas region, as you explained, but that road safety is basically the only uh, area of the best buys and the good buys in alcohol policy where uh, countries are following WHO recommendations. Is there any specific concern that you have that stands out or is this really this uh, lack of political will to implement uh, the best buy recommendations? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, that's the reality in, in mm. most countries. Uh, for marketing measures, there are very few in place. And uh, for availability, it's an issue that has never been really discussed. And I think we need to go deeper into that. Uh, why I'm saying that? Alcohol is sold everywhere. Mm. In, in many countries, you don't need a licensing system really that to, that has obligations and uh, it has a cost that is significant to sell alcohol. Brazil, the largest country, doesn't have one. You mm -hmm. just, anyone can open their window in a house and start selling alcohol. And so the fact that they have uh, a lot and up to five people, you don't need to require, you know, working there, you don't need to require the license. There are many, problems with the law that exists. It can be strengthened and uh, made uh, way better. Uh, density of outlets then cannot be even considered when you don't have a good licensing system. And, uh, but the way currently uh, we assess and just ask countries, do you have yes or no, uh, give a positive picture that is not really, uh, from a public health point of view, uh, a reality. So you are saying that uh, the surveys that WHO conducts, they also need to have more refined questions to understand the issues even better. Uh, yes, I, I would say so. There are many difficulties to Im uh, improve those surveys too. Uh, there are already large surveys ongoing. Uh, 
Uh, and now that we begin to talk about how you implement uh, these policies at city level, that's an, also a renewed chan uh, chance to improve these indicators and look better at what a city or mayor can do to uh, improve the situation. And uh, because sometimes it's not going to be the federal law, it is, these are state laws or local laws that can be improved. And uh, there is a gap there, I think, that uh, can be. And in this situation, what what are the roadblocks? What is hindering the, the harm is so big? Uh, you are providing the analysis for this, uh, as you explained in the very beginning. The tools are available, and yet it's uh, such a bleak picture. So, what are the obstacles? Well, on one uh, side, I think. Uh, we have uh, in the region a uh, relatively weak civil society organization mm -hmm. uh, in at country level and even a regional level there is a, can be a steady voice and a voice that is heard uh, in terms of uh, supporting asking and demanding change but i also think that uh, the role of governments in increasing the awareness and uh, educating people is competing with the marketing and that has way more space and and now it is in, in the internet and uh, it is unregulated mm -hmm. so uh, there are never enough resources at government level to support and do campaigns to uh, be at a weak equal part with all the marketing that is ongoing. So you do need uh, to regulate this industry. The other is uh, is not me saying, but it is uh, member states, the you know focal points, researchers, and people from NGO uh, that have uh, pointed out to the role of the alcohol industry in uh, interfering with the adoption of these policies uh, in the formulation of the policies in uh, sponsoring research to uh, deny uh, what we already know so these are strategies that now we uh, we recognize as very similar to the ones tobacco and other commodities uh, use uh, at, uh, to interfere with the political process, to influence, to lobby. And yeah. uh, so there is, I think, more of a recognition now that there is a, a conflict of interest between these commercial uh, enterprises and commercial interests and public health interests. And with that, there needs to be uh, a an appropriate separation between uh, uh, the roles of the industry, roles of government, of civil society, and uh, and basically regulating them as uh, everything in society almost is regulated uh, nowadays. When it comes to all this, um, as I said, I was really uh, excited to hear about the COVID-19 survey and the reports that you have put out. You mentioned some of the other tools that, that you have produced over the years. 
Um, I think uh, you in your work and the, the region has done excellent work in providing this kind of technical advice. W what can we expect is coming uh, out of your uh, region in, in the future in terms of these uh, outputs, these products? Uh, well, we began to develop and we are trying to continue to make it available, more available and uh, reach out to more countries. This are now called uh, per capita consumption uh, calculator. Uh, how uh, a country independent of the industry can find this, uh, the, this information and calculate themselves. Uh, what is the annual uh, APC. Mm -hmm. It uh, was developed and uh, more important than the tool is the discussion that you, you have at country level. What I mean by that is that this information often is not in the Ministry of Health, it is in the Ministry of Finance or Customs and uh, mm -hmm. other areas and you need to get together and establish a dialogue and understanding so health can have access to the information to make the calculation. And uh, it's for the public good. And, uh, but that requ requires sometimes even uh, change laws of it, mm. uh, or have formal agreements, uh, but that's the way uh, it's happening for, uh, sugary drinks for you know tobacco has uh, done that the other tool we are developing uh, is based also on the tobacco and, uh, and sugary beverages experience we had in the region is on, on a tax share calculator or indicator uh, we are conducting now uh, a first ever uh, a survey on alcohol prices and taxes in member states in Latin America and the Caribbean and uh, to be able to validate and uh, publish on, and on disseminate information and be able to compare countries on how much of the price is paid in tax for taxes, what is the fiscal space, uh, then you can discuss at individual level, individual country level, and uh, begin to prepare reports. Uh, but it's very important because currently there is no way to compare or even know how much uh, tax is being paid on, uh, on various types of alcoholic beverages. Uh, it's not an easy uh, exercise because of the hundreds of varieties and strengths and types of alcohol, but uh, we're starting uh, with some typical ones and trying to get a cheap and average cost. And uh, we'll see uh, how it goes. Uh, in theory, we did a pilot test in five countries and it worked well. Wow. So we uh, in the beginning of in, in the end of last year, so we expanded now the survey. The downside is that uh, we are during COVID, and to get answers from countries during this crisis, yeah. you know, assigning someone to uh, complete the survey is not an easy task. But uh, we'll keep insisting and or repeat the survey in a yeah. few months. It doesn't work this time. Um, 
We uh, also uh, is not work from my team, but we collaborate with them. But in surveillance for NCDs, they're developing uh, a mobile survey that can, uh, in which you can introduce alcohol questions, especially related to policy, and that might be useful for monitoring uh, policy. And uh, it's quicker is in the testing phase, but uh, I see as a, a good possibility there. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. we also have uh, developed or adapted from the European region an alcohol policy scoring. And uh, we published a report at the end of last year, and uh, we use that to talk about how low is the political commitment and how low is the implementation of these various policies. And uh, finally, I think uh, what we want to do is uh, to expand on uh, uh, capacity building and integration in health services of uh, brief interventions. More than for the effectiveness per se is to start this conversation among health professionals mm -hmm. about alcohol harms and uh, levels of drinking and what is a standard drink uh, because this doesn't happen at all. Uh, we, are, we are in the early stages, but there is a very successful WHO and regional project on hypertension and uh, called the HEARTS. And there are several packages uh, that have been developed and uh, it's very successful at the moment at the implementation in, in primary care centers. So we want to explore whether they would agree to Im implement the module on, on alcohol and uh, lifestyles and in a way that we can then assess whether, uh, not only assess the, how it decreases hypertension per se, it's more how you can implement and scale up uh, relatively easy intervention. And, uh, but that is uh, on the basis that people are aware and uh, are talking about the harms and what will be the benefits uh, of reducing uh, risk. Yeah. Yeah. These are all, I think, uh, really exciting. It sounds quite inspiring, to be honest. And I think now we are back at what you mentioned earlier this kind of ability to recognize the risk and to understand the problems and i think if i remember correctly maristella it's like 75 percent of the people that have an alcohol use disorder don't get any help and that's also because even these uh, easiest most uh, most uh, cost effective things are not being done in the primary care settings like the doctor asking how is your alcohol use when, when they have a patient? And of mm -hmm. course, uh, th there are lots of issues around this, like alcohol problems might be pervasive in the profession itself. So they might have cognitive dissonance. But I think this is very promising that uh, you are working with these modules and testing them and building on best practice from, from other areas. Yeah, that's uh, what... Uh, we're trying to do the same. We begin discussions on, uh, with the infectious disease unit on uh, how you integrate TB and alcohol and mental health, for example. 
we have talked before with uh, adolescent health mm. and how you frame uh, problems in a different way, not only with uh, educational approaches uh, towards the young people. And, uh, and alcohol in pregnancy, uh, also there is a, a center in Latin American reproductive health and child and uh, this perinatal uh, health actually. Yeah. And uh, our materials uh, go to them and uh, we need to work more with them on uh, reaching out to pediatricians to raise awareness about uh, the problem of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, as well as uh, gynecologists, uh, people who do prenatal care. I mean, the way I see is anywhere you look in the health system, there is a way, an entry point for a discussion on alcohol. And uh, that means you need uh, people uh, who are champions and who don't give up and try to uh, find this entry point in their countries uh, to have the discussion. Yeah, and I think these are all, uh, as I said, inspiring forward looking aspects already. So I, I wanted to ask you whether you have um, concrete thoughts about what moves us ahead in terms of making alcohol policy the priority it should be. I think you have mentioned uh, some of them already now with mainstreaming, uh, primary health care, uh, empowering young people to understand this, I think you talked about, but do you have any, any brilliant idea <laughs> that you could share with us about really how to make alcohol policy the priority it should be going forward? Uh, well, I think if we could have uh, a single voice, a one voice across agencies, across uh, sectors of the government, the multi-sectoral approach is important. Uh, not, non, no specialty alone will be able to implement or do everything that is needed. So if there is a whole of government approach in acceptance of the role of alcohol as a public health uh, priority. Uh, and in the UN system, that is also a, a resounding uh, uh, voice is, uh, is, is a step forward. Mm -hmm. And also because then uh, looking at the industry and monitoring what they're doing and uh, calling them or to stop that interference is uh, also more visible uh, because what we see sometimes is that they don't come uh, only to health or may not come to health. They come to uh, another area of development or water and sanitation or mm -hmm. economic uh, development and try to gather the other sectors around the idea that uh, they're part of the solution and uh, without the need for policy. And uh, that is uh, a problem to my view, yeah. because in, other, if in health already is a low uh, recognition of alcohol as a, a public health problem. Yeah. But you go to other sectors that do not even involve health directly and that uh, link is lost completely 
and it's an easy take to think, oh, what's the problem? Clean water, they, for example. They want to help the development of rural areas. Mm-hmm. And, or during COVID, all the actions that they did to provide hand sanitizers, and, and, but at the same time, they're expecting or they're already requesting the uh, incentives and the tax breaks and other, and they already benefited from the development of all this online uh, purchasing and deliveries. Uh, It's hard to control now. Yeah, and I think with this, um, we have our work cut out for ourselves, um, but I agree that monitoring, exposing and counteracting the alcohol industry seems important. And I thought this is uh, very insightful to talk about this one single voice, Maristella, across agencies. I think I have never really reflected it like you are putting it now that even in the health area, in the health sector, there is still too low of a recognition when it comes to alcohol harm. So I will definitely take this with me from our conversation to work towards uh, this uh, one single voice on on these issues. Thank you. Yeah, we need more people to <laughs> to say the same thing and you know tackle the problem. Yeah. In a- and it should be easier and easier as the evidence base gets uh, stronger and stronger. You mentioned some of these, like you just touched upon alcohol and cancer, uh, but many other things. So oh, yeah. it should be easier and easier for different actors to come into the fold and uh, talk about the the harm and the policy solutions. Exactly, yeah. And uh, we need to fight also the fake news and the misinformation that is widespreading quite fast and uh, and harms people. We we saw again with during COVID with people drinking hand sanitizers, drinking illicit alcohol, believing that they're gonna prevent their infection or treat or be stronger with that. And that led to uh, hundreds of deaths. And uh, so we we should be able to do more and better for people. Maristela, thank you so much for this conversation, for taking time. It's really insightful and inspiring. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting me. Here are the alcohol issues you need to know about this week. In policy news, we talk about the role of ultra cheap alcohol in the UK's heavy alcohol burden. And we explore similar stories from different countries about the need to strengthen services for people with alcohol problems during the pandemic. England, cheap alcohol fuels massive alcohol burden. Cheap alcohol is fueling the massive alcohol burden in England according to public health experts. Urgent policy action to increase alcohol prices is called for to reduce the burden and help the nation with pandemic recovery. An analysis by the Alcohol Health Alliance in the UK found that it is possible to buy 14 units of alcohol for as cheap as £2.68 in England. This is the price of one cup of coffee in most major high street chains.
according to the analysis, the cheapest products of alcohol in all of the UK were found in England because it's the only country in the UK without any alcohol floor price. Harm from ultra cheap alcohol is at epidemic levels and causes massive costs. When comparing alcohol costs to the alcohol duty collected, it shows that England is losing billions of pounds every year. Alcohol costs the UK at least 27 billion annually. Yet, over the past five years, the alcohol duty has raised just 10 billion pounds um, on any given year. Therefore, the Alcohol Health Alliance in the UK is calling for higher alcohol taxes complemented with implementing a minimum unit price in England too. In order to tackle the cheap alcohol problem, which is fueling widespread harm, this is specifically important in the current context to recover healthily from the pandemic. We also want to explore two similar stories from different countries because they highlight significant developments during the coronavirus crisis that actually many countries do have in common and that is the need to strengthen services for people with alcohol problems during the pandemic is actually coming into sharp focus now as people are increasingly looking for help to tackle their alcohol problems and improve their mental health. So let's look at the United States first. In the United States, doctors urge action on accelerating alcohol problems during the pandemic. Doctors have called for urgent action to address the growing alcohol harm in the United States during the COVID-19 pandemic. Americans are consuming alcohol to cope with pandemic stress and uncertainty. This would inevitably increase the alcohol burden in the country. Urgent policy action and increased awareness is therefore necessary to reduce long-term harm. And now, let's look at Germany. Germany and COVID-19. More people with alcohol problems seek help. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues on, more and more Germans with alcohol and other substance use problems are seeking help from the nationwide addiction counseling centers. However, these centers are underfunded, threatening the sustainable provision of this much-needed service. The coronavirus pandemic has increased addiction problems in communities across Germany. People are under heavy stress and anxiety due to various reasons including threats to jobs, pay cuts and caring for young children or elders while working from home. Meanwhile, many are also isolated due to physical distancing measures and have lost the usual routines and connections. This has led to people using more alcohol and other harmful substances in Germany in a way to self-medicate. This tendency has also been discovered in many other countries. The situation in Germany is worsened due to the underfunding of addiction counseling centers. The German Central Office for Addiction Issues has emphasized this, that many of the 1,300 addiction counseling centers nationwide are not financially secure. Public health advocates are now calling to make addiction counseling and help a mandatory service of the municipalities. 
and this investment in critical services to deal with alcohol use disorders and other mental health problems is important as a response to the current coronavirus pandemic. Regarding the latest Science Digest, we talk about a new study that examined the impact of alcohol policy development in former Soviet Union countries over the last 30 years. Alcohol policies in former Soviet Union countries. Over the past decade, alcohol use levels have declined in almost all former Soviet Union countries, paralleled by the introduction of various alcohol policy solutions to the heavy alcohol burden in respective countries. The so-called three best buys put forward by the World Health Organization to reduce the alcohol attributable burden, such as taxation and other measures to increase price, restrictions on alcohol availability and marketing, are relatively well implemented across the countries. The strong declines in alcohol use observed in the 15 former Soviet Union countries in this study resulted in a reduction of alcohol consumption in the WHO European region overall. The study we are discussing is entitled Alcohol Control Policies in Former Soviet Union Countries – A Narrative Review of Three Decades of Policy Changes and Their Apparent Effects. The study has been published in the Drug and Alcohol Review on November 5, 2020. The study has been conducted by Maria Neufeld, Anastasia Bobrova, Kairat Davletov, Mindaugas, Stille Mekas, Relika Stoppel, Karina Ferreira Borges, Joao Breda and Jürgen Rehm. They conducted a narrative review to shed light on recent alcohol use trends and alcohol policy developments in the 15 former Soviet Union countries, highlighting the most important setbacks, achievements and best practices. They also prepared vignettes of alcohol control policies in Belarus, Estonia, Kazakhstan, Lithuania and Uzbekistan and presented them to illustrate the recent developments. Among the key findings of the analysis of the 15 former Soviet Union states are In recent years, evidence-based alcohol policies have been actively implemented as a response to the enormous alcohol attributable burden in many of the countries, although there is big variance across and within different jurisdictions. Over the past decades, alcohol use levels have declined in almost all former Soviet Union countries, paralleled by the introduction of various alcohol control measures. The so-called three best buys put forward by the World Health Organization to reduce the alcohol attributable burden are relatively well implemented across the countries. Strong declines in alcohol consumption were observed in the 15 former Soviet Union countries, which have introduced various alcohol control measures in recent years, resulting in a reduction of alcohol consumption in the WHO European region overall. And 
In the Big Elkul Watch, we discuss corporate capture of the government in the Northern Territory in Australia that has moved now to allow an alcohol mega store in the middle of alcohol-free Aboriginal communities. Australia. Woolworths places alcohol mega store in the middle of alcohol-free Aboriginal communities. Woolworths is planning to go ahead with one of the largest alcohol mega stores in the country in Darwin, Northern Territory, right next to alcohol-free Aboriginal communities. Public health experts, the Aboriginal communities and the Northern Territory government's own independent liquor commission have called for the store not to be built. However, Big Alcohol's aggressive lobbying is influencing public health policy, putting private profits over public health and well-being. The Independent Liquor Commission had already rejected the plans for the proposed Dan Murphy's Alcohol Megastore in Darwin back in September 2019, saying that it was not in the public interest. The commission was actually set up by the Northern Territory government itself as part of its plan to develop an integrated strategy to prevent and reduce alcohol harms. When rejecting the application, the commission cited evidence that this store could lead to a significant increase in the level of alcohol-related harms that are already high in the wider community. Woolworths is currently appealing against the rejection by the Commission for a second time before an independent tribunal. The Alcohol Megastore is strongly opposed by indigenous communities and public health experts. They are mainly concerned about the alcohol harm the store would cause to the three nearby alcohol-free Aboriginal communities. However, the Northern Territory government seems to be listening more to big alcohol than public health experts and Aboriginal communities. The Northern Territory government has introduced legislation that would sideline the Independent Liquor Commission and would give the Director of Liquor Licensing 30 days to decide on the application for the megastore. These developments clearly indicate corporate capture of the Northern Territory government. But communities are pushing back. They have sent an open letter to Woolworths board ahead of its shareholder meeting on November 12th. Communities urged the company to reconsider its proposal to build the alcohol megastore um, close to communities that are living alcohol free. The open letter follows a very successful petition at change.org where more than 100,000 Australians signed on in support. These are this week's alcohol issues highlights. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you have stories you would like us to cover or if you have suggestions for topics to explore, please drop us a message. My email is mike.dünnbier at movendi.ngo.
to read more about this week's alcohol issues and to provide you with more details and sources, we have referenced all stories in the show notes. We also link to more information about the topics that Maristella raised. And if you have feedback, questions and suggestions, please do get in touch. We share our contact details also in the show notes. The Alcohol Issues podcast is made by Arin Pino, Taraka Ranchigoda, Kristina Sperkova and Mike Dünnbier. Our theme music is by LF Music. That's it for the Alcohol Issues podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Stay well and safe and see you next week.